Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 62. And today we're continuing our Nuns and Duns series. We're looking at the questions, how did we get here? What went wrong? Now, this is a direct continuation from our last episode, as we'll be reflecting on Helen's story and what she shared. So if you haven't listened to that episode, stop right now, go back and listen to that first, and then come back. But if you're ready to go, let's do this. Hello, hello, hello. The four of us are here today, and we'll be reflecting specifically on the points that Helen brought up in her story. There was just so much in there, and so we're just going to be jumping right in. You know, as we were listening through, some of those questions, some of those quotes were really impactful for us to hear, and, you know, in, in some ways, heartbreaking as well. And so one of the things that, you know, she asked very early on was, what went wrong? Like for her, she also asked this question, what went wrong for herself in terms of leading you know, toward this direction? And so what are your kind of reflections for hearing someone ask that question? It's kind of interesting how Helen started off with that and also said, I'm kind of like your cautionary tale. The ghosts. You know, it's kind of like, this could have been like, yeah, the haunting, right? Very Taylorian. <laughs> but just, you know, I don't know, this... I just thought that was kind of interesting. I was really intrigued by that question. But there was still a sense of rightness versus wrongness. Yeah, that's what I thought too, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't put my finger up. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and certainly struck by that there's this sort of sense of, maybe belonging is not quite the right word, but that, that sense of like being outside and sensing that maybe the rightness was centered on the bounded sort of, or the, the the community. I think there could be a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it could be, you know, just when you engage the world, when you are growing in, in your understanding in life, your experiences, some things start to shift. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe there weren't people there to walk with you while there was these, you know, thoughts or questions in mind. And maybe, you see hypocrisy in the church. Maybe you see hypocrisy in church leadership. You don't see people actually kind of modeling Christ in a way. It becomes more like any other kind of social group or organization. So I find that, yeah, I, I think there could be a lot of those things coming about. Or or maybe, you know, what I've noticed also recently is there's a heavy handedness of people like we're going to, you know, make sure that, you know, you act in a certain way or you behave in a certain way. And then that's how what will show who's in and who's out. But maybe they haven't experienced a lot of grace or a lot of dialogue and, you know, conversation about that. So like, so I was part of a different conversation about that Helen's talk too. And I think what was kind of fascinating is also thinking through like, is it just what went wrong or was like, how come certain people that have gone through similar experience retain a certain kind of religious connectedness over time? A certain groups of people would, would just leave. And like, maybe our experiences are not the same, but maybe our experiences are very similar. But like, I think the what went wrong, maybe it's trying to articulate like what was it in, you know, like in our different consciousness that like kind of interplay in this whole thing. And 
and yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was just a fascinating kind of reflection on this. And I don't necessarily think like, oh, like if we had only done this, then they would have stayed in the church, you know. And I don't think that's what it what it what it is. And I don't, I hope that like our our listeners don't think that because I don't think this is what what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you, Bernard. Like this is such an interesting question for us to kind of start with because. It kind of opens up a can of worms at what Xenia said, you know, kind of, is there the sense of like, oh, you know, is it wrong to ask questions? Is it wrong to feel that I don't belong? Is it wrong to feel that like, you know, I have these big struggles in my life? You know, maybe some of that is still pervasive in the ways that people consider their Christian identity. And with that being said, you know, have we been so defined or so specifically closed, I don't know if closed is the right word, uh, of not having a, a wider way in which we can talk about this, especially in church circles, especially in Christian communities. And and to have someone say like, oh, what went wrong is kind of thinking about like, oh, something must have been bad or something that was not right that has led me to this. And here's the thing, it's like, you know, maybe there needs to be more space and more openness to consider like, you know, maybe for a time someone needs to take a step back from the church to maybe experience it in a different way or, you know, have those kind of periods of wandering, but that's not wrong, right? It's not necessarily bad. And so I think that was one of those questions that really struck me at the very start. I was like, huh, that's, that's really interesting, you know, for someone. And maybe that comes from her perspective as someone who was on the inside and then left and feel that there was, I, I don't know if it's a sense of shame, it's a sense of regret, but it's its really interesting that that, that, that was one of the questions she kind of started off with. But I, but I also wonder, Helen introducing that question isn't necessarily a question that she wanted to necessarily like, quote-unquote answer. It was the question that I think she is almost like projecting the audience to be thinking about. I think most Christians, leaders would think, well, what went wrong? Like we read about hemorrhaging faith, renegotiating faith. We read about like listening to their voices, which like all of these were like, well, these are the factors that led to why people leave the church. But yet, like, I think it's kind of interesting because when Helen talked about it, it's like, well, you think that this is what went wrong, but let me kind of unearth it like a little bit more, you know? And I think that's what was really interesting about our conversation with Scott Wall and, you know, him not necessarily pointing out to a specific journey or formula, but just kind of giving some language to understanding like there's different stages in which people are kind of going through and how do we engage with people in different stages, you know? And and that was really interesting to kind of think about. Yeah, I think I really appreciate Helen's voice in part because whenever I look at those studies, I think, oh, are we looking at the right things? What kind of reactions to these studies provoke in us, especially as ministers in the church. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I sometimes wondering if like there's too much pressure on a church thinking that they can do everything and anything to keep everyone. Of course, like thinking about retention isn't is a whole other question to ask about, you know, to talk about another time. But, you know, and specifically in this in this conversation, there was a lot of great questions that she did raise and a lot of reflections. You know, for her to say, I couldn't see a single adult who was anything like me. Wow, that's a huge statement. That's a huge statement to think about, like in, in a community of faith, 
is it a question of just that they saw no future for themselves? Is this question of belonging? You know, where, where does that kind of stem out of? She did kind of talk a little bit about how when she went to Queens and she visited a church, but she did say that like there, it was there that she felt a semblance of people who actually understood her. And I wonder like sometimes like for our kind of evangelicalism, we've been so fixated on the, what is orthodoxy, what is right, that we don't actually understand like how to actually nuance and actually work through. And actually like there's very little space to like engage in questions and like trying to wrestle with the other because like so much of our modern evangelicalism was focusing on let's get the right answer and let's distill that right answer and then let's kind of come and mass that right answer to everyone that's why i find that a lot of university students going to university becomes this kind of life-altering experience because you're now being challenged by sometimes a progressive liberal arts university institution that challenges everything that you believe in. And it's not necessarily like it's trying to unravel your belief, but I think it's actually that healthy sense of deconstructive and potentially reconstructive process. And, you know, like maybe I'm reading too much into this because I've chatted with Helen a lot about this stuff is that like, we don't see a single adult that was anything like me is because I I wonder if many have gone through that deconstructive and reconstructive process or we've just kind of felt like we just got to you know take the red pill and then that's it we're done matrix reference <laughs> i was just gonna say like wow what a nerdy moment you know what's really interesting about her story if i can put the asian spin on this is that a lot of us grew up in contexts where we were modeled the faith in a language that wasn't our own or that we didn't think was our own and so there's a little bit of a gap there too, because when we translate stuff over, it's kind of like a photocopy of a photocopy. And so if, even if our parents' faith is real, and probably it is, that, that story doesn't get transferred in the same sort of ways because they don't really quite think in the same sort of ways that we do having grown up in the West. So I wonder if that's part of it too, that especially as I think about stories like Helen's plus we kept adopting these American models of thinking about faith, but then you take that plus Chinese culture and then you think, okay, let's reproduce this in our children. Well, okay. Does this work? That brings up such a good point that, you know, in in what ways has our churches become Xerox manufacturing company, (laughs) you know, where it's just copying and trying to, you know, just to create the same type of, church member or a type of disciple yeah that's really interesting like i wonder maybe i can share a little bit because i had some conversations with helen about this before too and how she had shared like like growing up in a kind of chinese evangelical church there were certain things that felt like they were ceilings for a woman chinese evangelical right like i think she grew up in a time where like women pastor were, was not a common thing, even though she had like an interest and inclination to explore a life of ministry. Right. And, and so like John, when you said like, may, maybe she doesn't foresee like a pathway forward, a future, a sense of belonging. And I think all of that happened as someone who was probably more academic than many of her peers and probably the adults within the church. Is there a place to ask the questions? Is there a place to engage deeper 
And like, even if there's an interest for ministry, like it didn't seem like that there was a place at the table for someone like her. Someone wow, that, that's, that's crazy. I didn't know that about Helen, man. Like that she, she could come from that space of even, you know, feel like she could get involved in ministry somehow, but then in the end kind of be turned off because of some of those restrictions and limitations. Wow. I mean, she was, you know, part of the whole evangelical narrative, right? Like in Toronto, especially, right? Everything that, you know, when we interviewed Scott Wall, like about TC, about Urban and everything, like she was involved in all of that. She was on mission trips, you know, and that was like so much a part of her, like her religious consciousness. But yet I think deep inside there was kind of this dissonance, this wrestling of like, well, I really believe in this stuff, but like, how come the way that God has kind of formed and created me like, I don't have a, I don't have a place. I think that's why, like, I have a lot of great conversation with her because my narrative is so different too, right? Like, not coming in with like all the evangelical narrative. Like, I don't know Sunday school. I don't know like BBS. I've never been to Awana, and having to like enter into a system where it's like, oh, you got to pray, you got to sing this way, you got to pray this way, and you kind of got to jump in, you got to you got to assimilate into this kind of framework. But like, you just there's a dissonance. And that's, I think, why, like, you know, when she said, couldn't see a single adult who was anything like me, because they don't appreciate the music that I like. They don't appreciate the thoughts that I have. There's no engagement, you know, and it's more just like, here, eat this that we presented and just, you know, go off and play on your table kind of thing, like little kids. I have to say that I resonated when she was saying that stuff. I was like, oh, that really could have been me. And it was me for a little bit. And I just remembered growing up and thinking, I never asked my questions because I was afraid to, because I'd see other people shut down for asking their questions. I wasn't the out and out like, oh, I've got a million and five questions. Can you answer them? Just because I was purely afraid. But I, I get where she's coming from. I don't, in the traditional evangelical church, I don't still always feel like my intellectual gifts are welcome at the table. I've been told, oh, you're too smart for your own good. Oh, you know, ministry is more pragmatic. I don't actually think so. And I hear that and I think, oh, she must have felt her very fundamental being was being rejected and that there wasn't, or conversely, I was just talking to a couple of friends and I, I, she must have had this experience in Kingston, but that her gifts were welcome, but in white churches and then feeling like maybe she had to reject her Chinese heritage. I know people who have said that to me, who've said, oh, well, you know, all these white Christians are saying this stuff. And that's really cool, but I'm not white. So if I do this other stuff, does that make me any less Chinese? I don't know if that was the tension she wrestled with, but certainly I think when you see a different generation who was raised differently, who has different values, who speaks a different language, thinks of a different worldview, and then you pair that with a second generation who's not interested in the same things that you are, you're kind of like this odd duck in the middle of these separate worlds in which you don't really belong in either. Yeah, I'm also thinking of the, yeah, that Asian side, the immigrant side to the equation about like, you know, that I could totally understand why, you know, the adults are not like you, if you're, especially if you're coming from a more Western kind of approach or Western kind of cultural identity. And not to say Helen was only holding on to that either. I don't think so. But it was, it's just interesting to, to come into a, Asian immigrant church that's bringing in a cultural identity, you know, Christian cultural identity from Hong Kong or, or whatnot. And now you got to be like this, you know, and, and I grew up in, in, in that system. It's interesting to reflect on that, to actually think, 
I had to do a lot of soul searching, a lot of kind of a lot of conversation and dialogue with other people to realize wait, uh, people come approach faith differently. You have to be very open to where people are coming from, you know, because it's not just, let me share the gospel with you and you become an evangelical Christian or you're not really a Christian. It's like, how do I talk to Pentecostals who are definitely more spirit-led? spirit How do I talk to a Black friend who who has a totally, you know, Jamaican kind of uh, heritage? How do, you, how do you engage people in these different ways and you have to walk with them and be open? But if if you're only coming from one angle, and then you only come into that uh, institution or that tradition, then you can easily be kind of turned off if it's, you know, held on too rigidly and that leadership just reinforces it. That's it. So, so I, yeah, I find that interesting that an Asian immigrant side could possibly even turn off their next generation in that way. I think that something that doesn't get talked about enough is that the particular strain of Chinese evangelicalism that we've inherited is actually fundamentalism. And so we don't actually know or are aware of other traditions and we don't really understand them because of this particular strain we've inherited that came from, you know, the 1930s. And I think the other thing too is that because our parents were immigrants who came over here, a lot of it was framed as us versus them right from the get-go. We don't really belong out there. We belong in here. And so I wonder if that narrative got doubly entrenched for us the fundamentalist sort of urge to be like, okay, well, you know, there's evil in the world. And then there's us, that same, like, sort of we're bracketed in, but then also the immigrant mentality of we don't belong out there. So we'll just make a space where our kids and we can belong. Not like realizing for- that. Fortress mentality a little bit. Yeah. Like the preservation of culture kind of thing. Yeah, both. But it sounds like from Helen's perspective that she also felt like on the inside, she didn't belong, that there wasn't that space for her as well. And that's really interesting because, you know, when we add in that extra layer of culture and thinking about the flavor or the bias or perhaps the way that culture has set up what we believe about church and what we believe about who we are in Christ and our communities, like, there's so much to unpack there. And I think that has been something that we've talked about over the years is, is, is how that context has influenced the way we have defined church and have defined leadership or have defined being a disciple. And I think it's just actually heartbreaking to hear Helen's reflection, her expressing her feelings in that way, for Xenia to have said something like, you know, my intellect wasn't really welcome, and to hear that people are marginalized when they are a certain way, or that's, their, that's the way they're wired, that's their personality, that's the way they lean into their faith, that's the way they understand and have have been formed in, in their faith, but feel more and more that they don't fit the cultural norm. And Helen said it earlier too, where she said, you know, the cultural codes, the cultural norms, which make up community, have a way of amputating bits and pieces off others. And when she said something like that, I was like, that's a bomb dropping. That's something to really consider. Like, wow, is certain parts in certain ways of the cultural ways in which we have been formed, has it been marginalizing and excluding others? Has it been in some ways closing the doors or not making people feel that they are part of this and that the gospel is big enough for this and that the church is big enough for this? See, see and what, what I find with that and what you know, I'm sure we have all noticed is most of the time leadership in church does this to protect, quote unquote, 
their sheep, protect their congregation, because they don't want it to be influenced by someone who, with a dissenting voice or leading them, quote unquote, astray or something like that. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but I like, I find that that's, that's kind of in the name, people will do that in the name of that. But yeah, it's just something that I, I think I, I've noticed that. I don't know about you guys. What do you, what do you think? I feel like what you just said, I need to hear a bit more because what you said about protecting the sheep, I think you need to nuance that out a bit because I think that could probably be understood or misunderstood in a lot of different ways. So when you say that, what are you particularly meaning? I'll let, I'll let people misunderstand that all they want, but I find that that's exactly what, what happens. <laughs> like, you know, like it, it it's, you hear it all the time. It's like, oh, well... You know, we don't want it to go in a certain way, or, or let's just say someone like Helen, uh, like a person that was like Helen, who who would be want to speak her mind and and have genuine questions, but then the leadership's like, oh no, you can't ask that here, or you know, like a women in ministry question. If your denomination is not okay with women in ministry, why are you asking this question? Kind of thing. It's just like we've already decided we're the arbiters of this. So I think that's the frustration that 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 comes out of that. But I on the leadership end, they're probably like, well, we already decided this. You know, but we're not going to necessarily talk with you and dialogue with you and maybe, you know, kind of relationally engage your question. It's almost like, here's the fence, you know, and then you just got to deal with it. Okay, I, I'm not being as graceful as I could to some leadership, but maybe like Xenia is saying, sometimes it can come across fundamentalist, even though if I were to give them the benefit of that as much as possible, maybe they don't want to do that, but it comes across that way. Maybe part of it is like, at least the modern church has been more focused on culture keeping versus culture making. Like there's a sense that like there's a certain rubric of preservation and like, and and again, like we kind of go back to this modern and this mindset of like, we've touched on fundamentalism. There's a certain aspect of like the truth that we hold is the only truth we carry. And even in certain practices that we may not even fully understand why we practice it, but we just know that this is what keeps us safe. But yet so much, I believe, like this is just my own opinion, is that the church is also invited to be culture makers. That we, as we interact, as we engage with the populace, like we're learning to see like what is God's restorative, redemptive act and plan, right? We talk a lot about mission. And a lot of mission in many ways is because that culture making is that like power of us idea of like kingdom politics is how do we inform this kind of way of life and we're making culture. And I think where we kind of land on how we approach culture, I think will also reveal like why these cultural codes begin to amputate. But, but like, go back to what you were saying about, we don't know why we do what we do. That's been a problem in this kind of, late modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, societal place that we're in right now, that people are questioning where Christianity or, or your, tr- your denomination or tradition of Christianity came up with its culture and, and, and stuff. But is there space to talk about that and to wrestle with it and to go through it? Or is it just, you just got to live it this way. That's it. Like, you know, and, and then you, like, even the leaders realize they're not able to explain it. So it's easier just to kind of go, you just gotta you just gotta do what you gotta do what you gotta do what's always been done and that's their answer sometimes but i feel like there's a lot of dissatisfaction in that for people to hear that as a response they're just not satisfied with that answer they they don't they're like well 
then why do we need to live it like this? You know, Helen definitely wasn't satisfied with that answer. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I think for her, like being someone who is, you know, just the way she expressed herself, she thought through this. And then for her to say something, you know, later on in her talk that says like, you know, being in that space, that that church was actually turning her against her faith. And I was just like, wow, how do we, how do we even unpack something like this? You know, you know, for her, her quotes in particular were, were talking about how like she was having received it in a way where it's like, this is an insular environment. This is small mindedness. Questions is synonymous with dissent. And I don't even know, like, of course, we don't know her, like we weren't there in her context, but for her to feel that way, like, I wonder what exactly was expressed and how it was communicated that she felt that, you know, that she was being divisive or dis- or dissenting by just asking questions and just feeling the sense of like groupthink versus intellect. And I know Xenia was talking about that a little bit earlier too. Overemphasis on studying, like kind of almost, you know, there's that critique sometimes about like, oh, Sunday school, Sunday school, right? But it's, it's too kind of just content academic heavy and not so much able to be internalized or processed in other ways. And it, it's, it's sad. They're striving for a more honest and transparent type of community, but they feel like they're penalized for it when they feel like they are taking those steps. I was thinking that I do think that our current cultures are insufficient. And I want to say our culture-making narratives in the church are insufficient. And I, I say this in part because one of the things that our cultures rely on is on trust. And maybe through no fault of the church, maybe through no fault of the leadership, though invariably that always plays a role, trust has been broken. And I think it's because there's this huge sort of movement towards distrust of authority and needing to actually have a personal experience of truth, of needing to determine truth for oneself. Like that's just part of our culture at this point. And it collides right with everything that we've been taught. And particularly, I think, within East Asian cultures that are very Confucian, there's this sense of, well, why don't you just trust the system? Why don't you just trust the father figure? Why don't you know all the relations that, you know, fundamentally make us who we are? There's different types of relationships. And the very bottom line is the legality. And you only enforce the legality when nothing else is working. And that's sort of the mark for an authoritarian regime. And I'm talking about states, not about cultures, but it it kind of translates because privates and publics don't make any sense in Chinese. But the thing is, is that like when you start talking about those things, that all the other stuff that makes up our high context culture gets ignored. And so, you know, even though most of us don't really speak Chinese, we don't feel like we fully belong in the Chinese culture per se, or the, for a lot of diaspora people, diaspora descent people, they don't feel like they, they belong to the first generation. The truth is that we still carry a lot of that culture with us. And we're still operating in those norms without being able to identify them. And so when I say that the church's culture is insufficient, I mean that we haven't even unpacked the different norms and values that are floating around. Plus, now we've got this like whole Western thing that's been thrown into the mix. And all of a sudden, of course, it's not going to be sufficient because we're actually asking for clarifying questions so we can operate in 
this other culture that we keep encountering every week, but yet we don't fully fit into that narrative. And so I'm saying what we actually need to do is take a look at all of our narratives and figure it out. When we're talking about culture, we're talking about, okay, we've actually already given into culture. We've already said, this is the culture. This is how it stands. We can't move from there. We've already given in. But I'm saying if we take a look at the larger culture, if we actually start to expand some of our thinking and welcome Jesus into the conversation, what we actually do is begin to discern and to pray through, okay, God, what are you doing? How are you calling us here? What does this mean for us? Well, I think what what Xenia is getting at, which I think it's not just the frustration or not even just the deconstruction, but she's alluding to a, a way to move into a reconstruction together under Christ, which I, I think is part of the, the humbly missing component in, in the leadership that's not modeled, that I think that Christ would. So it's just, I, I, I definitely resonate with what, what Zenia said just now. Man, there's so much that we can continue to go down, and we're hoping that as we're continuing along this series, we're we're able to unpack it more, to, to hopefully find a new way, to try to imagine a new way that the gospel itself makes our culture, that we can invite each other in to be part of that process, and perhaps to be more aware of how we have been formed by our cultures, by our histories, our families of origins. We'll kind of just end off today with this last quote from her, and for her saying that even though for her having stepped away from the church, she realized that there's certain things that she missed about the church, and those ideas of phantom limbs, almost like when something is gone, she still longs for it. She still appreciates it. She still holds the ideal and she remembers her own experiences of it. And so for when she says like, wow, in the church that there is this, at least this drive or at least, you know, this hope that you can love each other unconditionally, that there is this kind of religious togetherness, that that is something that Helen herself didn't see in the world. She didn't see in other places, but she missed that about being a part of a church. I thought that was really insightful. I think that that was really gracious. For her to say that and to to be honest that you know there are certain things that in the church she did experience that were really good and that she really did feel that was valuable but perhaps for whatever reason it, it wasn't enough i don't know if that's the right word to say it but it's just like like it had to go beyond just kind of the ideal when i actually heard her say that i was really sad i wonder what it would look like for us to be a church where people feel welcome no matter who they are. And the truth is, is that I think that there's not a lot of space for that sort of thing in institutional churches. I think that when we turn churches into just the system, systems tend to oppress people. That's, that's what they do. They're, they're looking for their own survival instead of forgetting that systems were made for people. And so I wonder if what we need to recover in this time is actually, as, as a leader in the church, I wonder if we need to recover the sense of we actually need to remember that fundamentally it's about the body of Christ. It's about relationship. It's about being with one another. It's about being faithfully present with one another. And I think I want to say too, for anybody who is thinking about leaving the church because of experiences or because they don't feel like they belong or uh, whatever it might be, take another look at the landscape. Uh, One of the best things someone said to me was, I was in high school and I was talking to a high school teacher about leaving my faith. And he said to me, well, Xenia, you know, 
the church that you grew up in is not all that the church has to offer. Try something else. And those words resonated with me enough that I actually stepped into a church when I arrived at university. My story goes a little longer than that, but I haven't forgotten those words because I think he was right. The body of Christ is bigger than what we know. There is room at the table. It might just might be at your particular place at the table right now. And by the way, I think that flies in the face of a bit of the the Asian immigrant goal. It's because sometimes I think the highest goal may be to, I think my uncle Simon, uh, shout, him, shout him out again, but he always wondered, is the ultimate goal of the Asian immigrant church, was it more about bringing all the generations together and that was the highest ideal? So it's almost like if you didn't do that, you sort of failed kind of thing. But then you're, you also got to realize, and I'm realizing this as a parent, you're not raising this child so that, oh, the success is totally dependent on how you've raised or how you kept them, but that how you raise them to also that they become who they are in Christ and they can move forward. And you, you are part of that journey, but it's not necessarily you are the gatekeeper or, or guarding every single thing. You, you can't do that. You're not. That's, that's not your role. You walk, you, you're with them, you, you're above them, you're, you walk beside them, and then you have to let them go. You have to let them uh, find that path as well. So I, I've, I've thought about that way too, that it's just like, but if the Asian immigrant church has that as their highest or penultimate goal, I think it's, it's at times telling about where some of that stuff is. I do want to kind of riff off on kind of the Asian Canadian uh, immigrant table because I always find that very fascinating. And, and I also find that like, as of late, like we've been disrupting that table in our own home too. Like, because traditionally when you gather as family gatherings is very like just your familial family gathering over a meal, but more and more like we're learning to invite people during the times of like Christmas, uh, New Year's and Thanksgiving, just guests who just don't have a place. Right. And, and the beauty of that is, not only is that an extension to someone who don't have a place, but also when they come, they kind of also disrupt our usual culture. And I also find sometimes, like I remember growing up, like we always have family gatherings and like, you know, we would always have like one dining room table. But when more guests come, you just kind of grab whatever works. You know, you just kind of grab this random mahjong table and you just throw it on and, and you just kind of extend, extend, extend that table. And perhaps like, how we have practiced our meal times maybe is one of the practices for our churches to reimagine what church is. That we don't need to have this, you know, beautiful, pristine meal. But maybe it's just that, like, it's who's at the table and how are we creating those spaces? How are we getting the tikbang and then taking it over, you know, and then just opening it up for whoever that comes in? Maybe they'll bring some to totally random food and that has nothing to do with what we eat. But yet like this enmeshment of like culture forming is part of what maybe God's calling us to. And isn't that the best of, I find even Chinese culture, like it's not a privatized only blood thing, but to even bless your village, the people around you. Yeah. That's what I love about, you know, Asian culture too. I am kind of thinking about what we were talking about when John was asking the question and going back to, you know, that quote that Helen has said, you know, how like this kind of phantom limb love unconditionally and kind of like how the church operates out of that desire for religious togetherness. And, you know, like, like senior, like I also felt a sense of sadness 
But yet I think I kind of also feel a sense of hopefulness as well, because I think for Helen to go through what she's gone through and yet still has some inclinations of there is something beautiful about the church. And there is something that still leads me to kind of consider and think about. And I remember having those conversations with her uh, and maybe because she reads Charles Taylor a lot and her phantom limb idea almost kind of feels like that haunting, you know, from your past, from, from your experiences. I just like, I remember her inviting me to something that she put together with a group of people from uh, her school called the Sunday morning salon. It was kind of like a non-religious church. Like, so this is a, a quote from what, what they've wrote on. It says, somewhere between a faith community potluck and a French salon, we've carved out a working model and, a na- and named a Sunday morning salon built around semi-regular discussion sessions about current events. It would bridge the personal and professional divide in two ways. So she's kind of like th- describing it, but like embedded in what she was describing is like many people who've grown up in religious institutions have that kind of sense of gathering. It's like, we miss it. And like, and I think like why I wanted to point to that idea of hopefulness is like, I, I think like we often think like, you know, people who are just done with church hurt and that that's it. But like, there's something about maybe in, in the very depth of what the church is intended for this kind of fellowship of communities and, and differences and, and, and freedom. We just, there is a way forward in kind of reimagining that space. And not necessarily like doing a Sunday morning salon, but I'm just saying like there is a desire and and that is, as Helen has described, like that is what the church um, is supposed to be good at. And maybe we need to lean in and leverage and reimagine and restart, reboot, reform, whatever word we want to use. But I think think there's hope. And I think like the message that she presents is a dire one, but I think there is hope in the midst of it. You know, as you guys were sharing that, you know, in my mind, too, I was just thinking, like, as kids, you know, being invited to kind of a family dinner or something like that, there's that children's table, or, you know, you have that table on the side, and it's like, okay, if if you're treated just constantly, like, you know, like, when you're a kid, you don't care, because you're like, okay, I get to be at part of this dinner, right? But then maybe later on, there's a sense of like, oh, you know what? I, I want to be part of those other conversations. I want to be part of, you know, how this is all happening and how this is all formed and maybe discerning and and imagining what this could look like. And and I wonder what that process could look like, how to make that bridge, you know, how to invite someone to the table. For what Helen had shared in her talk, I think it did make me feel a lot that, you know, like she, there was a sense that she belonged to the family, to the tribe. And that was good, but maybe she just felt that, like, you know, there wasn't that bridge. There wasn't any way to be part of how the culture was being formed. And, like, she was saying earlier that, like, oh, man, it feels like the, the leaders are the gatekeepers rather than the ones who invite people in to be part of that process. And I thought about the parable of the guests, too, right? You know, I think sometimes we just think about that parable in the sense of kind of the outsider or the marginalized and such like that. But what happens if it's within the church, too? It's just like, you know... What if leaders of the church were the ones to actually be more inviting, more honoring, more saying, hey, take a higher seat? The dream that Shu was remarking on that his, his uncle was making about like all generations coming to the church, like all generations being part of the church. I wonder if that dream actually is unable to be realized, whether it's because 
God only has a specific part that the Asian church plays and that perhaps, you know, it will be an on-ramp to something else. Or perhaps, you know, it can't happen because, you know, some of those cultural codes or norms prevent us from achieving that. And that's something to kind of work through at another time because it's... I, I really wonder, and I think the jury is still out on whether it can happen. I, I, I'm also thinking of <laughs> randomly, and you know, in Moses' story, how the whole generation didn't get to see that promise. <laughs> so they die in the yeah, wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, no, okay, I'll leave it alone. This analogy is is going off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I I would have to say that it's not the first time that someone has said to me, "You're just going to have to wait until that generation dies." And I thought in my mind, I was just like, I don't believe that. I, maybe I'm too hopeful or optimistic, or maybe just because I believe, you know, God can redeem this. God can actually work through the power of his spirit to actually bring us into something new. Maybe it takes one generation to realize that that's a falsity. Because I'm sure every generation, they'll talk about that. That until a generation <laughs> dies, like nothing's changed can happen. And it will come to a generation that's like, no, we will not stand for that. Maybe the next generation is looking at us that way. You know, us younger, younger pastors, we're already in too entrenched and that, you know, we have to be more open. You know, so it's just, I don't know. It just, you're <laughs> I don't know if, if, if that's the case or if some people are like, those guys are too open. There needs to be some kind of boundaries. These guys are way too open. But you know what? It's a humble admission to be able to just be like, you know what? None of us have the perfect church. None of us have the perfect community. And we need to continue to discern this together. In fact, isn't that part of what being a community is, is to be able to discern it together? However, maybe we're blinded or not aware of the ways in which we are preventing people from being a part of that. And so, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, we've been kind of dancing around this table analogy for the last little while. And I, I just wanted to say that Jesus is the host of the table. And I think Boom! that... Amen! You no, know, like, Jesus is the one who invites. And so... There's a part of me that says, well, who are we to stop people from getting to Jesus? Amen. The other thing is, is that Jesus sets the norms. He sets the values at the table. He's the one who pulls up another chair. And when we see him do that with other people, we need to be doing that alongside him. And I think, too, with that, like I think about, you know, the Eucharist uh, communion. I, I think about the beautiful story of a, a bread that symbolizes his body that is broken for us, the blood that is poured out for us. But I also think of this image that we are the body of Christ. Like, as the church, we are also the body of Christ. And so the Eucharist kind of symbolizes this thing where we come together, we come together for the, for the Eucharist, we partake in fellowship with one another, and then at the end of it, we are broken again for the sake of the world. And I don't think we often think about that, that when we come to the table, we are restored by the Eucharist or by fellowship together around the Eucharist. But then the, the point of it isn't that we stay there. The point of it is that we get broken for the sake of the world, because that's what Jesus did. And it's always this sort of flow between coming together and being sent out, coming together and being sent out. So I wonder if we actually need to reconsider that image again of saying, we're going to come in, we're going to be together, but we also need to have a posture of being sent out of being broken for the world, because that is what Jesus did for us. And you know what? That's it for today's episode. Man, there is just so much to unpack 
and to kind of continue to dive deeper in on the topics of nuns and duns. And for the format of our series, we're going to be listening to people's stories, hear other people's experiences, and to be reflecting, to be thinking about what does this mean for us as the church? How do we respond? How can we understand? How can we engage and invite people in? And of course, there's going to be times where we're going to lament. There's going to be times where we're going to be grieving over certain things that have happened in the past. But one of the things that we're, we're aiming to do is to approach this with a sense of hope. Maybe in some ways, God is breaking through, that his kingdom is breaking through, that he is actually shaping us, shaping our culture, and we're part of that process. That's part of being on God's mission in this world, the restoration, the redemption of it, and that we realize we need his help to do it. There's so much that we're looking forward to and that we've already recorded, and we can't wait for you guys to hear. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast. That helps you get this regularly so you don't miss any part of this series, but also helps us as a podcast to get this conversation out there. And you can reach us, and we'd love to hear your reflections on what we've been talking about. What are your thoughts as you listen to us dialogue and listen to Helen's talk? Man, we want to hear from you. You can reach us by email. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. So contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach us by Facebook, Instagram, or by Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear how you're continuing to wrestle with this topic. And we're going to be back with some more. And so once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. And we hope that you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.